We're not to allow sin to reign in our body. Who's in control? When we say Jesus is Lord, well, Jesus is supposed to be in control. But when we allow sin or an area of sin to reign and rule in our body, then the Lord is no longer in control. The sin is in control. We're not to allow sin to reign in our body. Welcome to The Cleansing Word. We invite you to stay with us as Pastor John Pinnell of Calvary Chapel Lake Villa takes us through a verse-by-verse study from God's Word. Each Monday through Friday, we'll be airing messages to encourage you in your faith that you might grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you enjoy this broadcast, and I'll return at the close of this teaching to give you more information about our church and how you can obtain a copy of this message. Now here's Pastor John with today's message from God's Word. We're going to get into the text by reading the first eight verses here. And really this is Paul encouraging the church to abound in Jesus, to abound more and more. It's something that a phrase that he repeated three times in a short portion of Scripture. And so we read 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified For God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. In verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. How many have asked that question? Lord, what's your will for me? What do you desire for me in my life? Here's an answer to it, your sanctification. We find this phrase, the will of God, being used in various places in Paul's writing. In Romans 12.1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In Ephesians 5, 15, 16, and 17, he writes this, See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, for the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will 
of the Lord is. In Colossians 1, 9, 10, and 11, he says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to the glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. Our memory verse for this month, or verses for this month, First Thessalonians 5, 16, 17, and 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Compiling these verses together, we see that God's will for our lives involves our sanctification. Offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Being a people that redeems the time in the evil day that we live in. Walking worthy of the Lord. Walking in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Living fruitful lives that bring glory to the Lord. Rejoicing and praying and giving thanks for all the things that come in our lives. For this is the will of God for us. Your sanctification, that word literally means to be made pure. But it also means to be set apart. In the Old Testament, it really came to deal with a lot of the instruments that were used in temple worship. They were set apart for this holy service. They were set apart to the Lord and only to the Lord and for nothing else. And so a priest at the end of the day couldn't borrow a pot from the Lord's house, take it home and use it for cooking just a common meal. It wasn't meant for that. They had been set apart unto the Lord for his purposes. And this is what he desires of us, that we are the vessels that he has set apart now for his services, for his use. We have been set apart for the Lord's service. We're going to be just overviewing a little bit of Romans 6 here. Because there in Romans 6, we see two sides of sanctification. What's it mean to be sanctified? Well, we have a split in the definition. There's actually three that we could use. We're going to deal with two. I'll mention all three to you. What's it mean to be sanctified? In Romans 6, we first learned that there is the positional sanctification. As believers, we come to this place of being sanctified, being set apart for God's services. But there are also a place of practical sanctification, how we live it out in our lives, how we walk to please God. And then the third, which we're not going to deal with at all, simply deals with once we're done with this flesh, once this body is done and we see the Lord face to face, we're in that place of pure sanctification where we're, we've arrived. But until that day, there's the positional side of sanctification and there's the practical side of sanctification. When you read over Romans 6, and I want to encourage you guys to do this for yourself this week, as you're reading through it, underline how Paul uses the phrase over and over again in different ways, but basically in verse 3, and do you not know in verse 6, knowing this, in verse 9, knowing that Christ, that he's using this phrase over and over again. He's, he's calling them to remembrance. He's calling us to remembrance. And in those changes of the no, in verse 16, we find another one. There's changes of themes that are taking place. 
Positional sanctification means that place, that position that we already have as believers in Christ Jesus. In one sense, we've already arrived here. And what have we arrived in? Well, in verses 3 through 5, it deals with the identification with Jesus in his death, that we have been baptized into his death. In verses 4 and 5, it deals with our identification with Jesus in his resurrection, and we are to walk in newness of life. And so we have in positional sanctification, we're identified with his death. We are identified with his resurrection, but also in verses 6 and 7, it deals again with his death, but we are identified with his crucifixion. It literally means to be impaled with, that when Christ hung on that cross as he took our sins upon him, that we were hanging there too, or at least our sins were put upon him. We have been crucified with Christ, and we have been identified with this death, fourthly, that death no longer has dominion over us. It doesn't have dominion because there is no second death to those who believe. And so in the positional sanctification, we are identified with the Lord's death, with his resurrection, with his crucifixion. And finally, that death no longer has dominion over us, verses 8 through 10. But the practical side of sanctification, it speaks about how we live, how we walk it out in this life. In verse 11, it says we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin. Reckon, to consider yourself no longer viable in that area of sin. We're dead to sin. That's how we're to live. In verse 11, also, we're to present ourselves alive to Christ. In verse 12, we're not to allow sin to reign in our body. Who's in control? When we say Jesus is Lord, well, Jesus is supposed to be in control. But when we allow sin or an area of sin to reign and rule in our body, then the Lord is no longer in control. The sin is in control. We're not to allow sin to reign in our body. We are to present ourselves as instruments of righteousness, verse 13 and verse 14. We're not to allow sin to have dominion over us. Practically, how we work it out. We reckon ourselves dead to sin. We present ourselves alive to Christ. We do not allow sin to have reign over our bodies. We present ourselves as instruments of righteousness. An instrument is a tool. And we're simply saying, Lord, let us become your tool that you can work through us. And we're not to allow sin to have dominion over us. It's working it out practically, the sanctification. And this is very difficult for many of us. And it's not that we, in this life, arrive momentarily. In the position that we have in Christ, yes, we do. We've already been identified with his death, his resurrection, his crucifixion. But as believers, now it's that walk, and it's the Lord working out this stuff that's in our lives. And he says to them, that you would flee back in Thessalonians, that you would flee from sexual immorality. What's God's will for your life? Your sanctification. What area does he want to deal with? Your sexual immorality. It would appear that this was taking place. Remember, Paul, Peter, Timothy, he's the right guy, just got back from there. So he had given... In chapter 3, Paul, a glowing report, but I also feel that Timothy mentioned some things that he saw going on in the church there. He said they're pretty much living just like the world. I see sexual sin abounding within the fellowship. There hasn't been a distinction, a change in that area as of yet. Paul specifically nails this area of sexual immorality. 
It was his first and greatest concern here in this portion of Scripture. And we need to realize the morals of that in Paul's day. We read through the Old Testament, we see that this was a problem that plagued the nation of Israel over and over and over again. The kings of Israel, David, even fell in this area. But in the Grecian and Roman empires, now Rome is overall, they had conquered the Greeks, but the Greeks brought in this common language to the world that was part of, still part of the Roman Empire. And in the Greek religion, they adapted their worship to the religions of Egypt, Asia Minor, and Persia because their gods promised this area of sexual immorality. It was okay to be sexually immoral. For them, sex played an important role in religious beliefs. They had practices that would, and the Romans adopted this same lifestyle also. Well, for instance, the gods and goddesses of fertility were worshipped with male and female prostitutes. They literally believed if they could go and have sex in a certain place that God would bless them in many different ways, that he would bless them to have large herds, abundant crops, and many children. And so in their guise of worship, they would take prostitutes who were acting as priests to their gods. One of the Greek orders that we read of had this to say about his society. And this was literally some 300 to 50 years before Christ. It says, we keep prostitutes for our pleasure, mistresses for our daily needs of our body, wives for the begetting of our legitimate children and the faithful guardianship of our home. Prostitutes for their pleasure, mistresses to meet our daily needs, and then they had their actual wives that would have legitimate children through. That was the society that was adopted during Paul's day, during the day that Paul was writing this letter. Sexual immorality, the word is pornea. We know that we get pornographic porn from that. And it can be translated and is translated in the Bible in other places as fornication. It deals with every kind of unlawful sexual intercourse. And so it causes us to ask the question, what is lawful? Well, according to the word of God, marriage is the only lawful outlet. We have a twisted concept of sex because of our society But what we need to realize and recognize is God is the inventor of sex. He gave it to us to have that intimacy with our spouses, but also for the area of procreation, but for two reasons. The two become one flesh. In Hebrews 13, 4, it says, The marriage bed is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. Marriage is honorable among all, the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, this is, to be honest with you, these three verses of Scripture, verses 9, 10, 11, are a favorite portion for me. And I believe because I, I fell guilty in these areas. But I also see the forgiveness that is found here. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, that same word pornea, nor idolaters or adulterers, or homosexuals or sodomites. The difference between a homosexual and sodomite there deals with uh, little boys being used as prostitutes there. So young boys is being used as prostitutes. So homosexual, man-to-man, 
sodomites, man to boy, literally is what it's talking about in the Greek. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. He lists out all these things. And then he says to the church there, and such were some of you. Hey, this is where you guys were at. But this is where you're at today. You have been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. In verse 4, he tells us that we should know how to possess our own vessel in sanctification and honor. To possess one's vessel, many believe that they were talking about, well, they believe he was talking about their wives. For this reason, Peter in 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as a weaker vessel. He said, possess your own vessel. In a sense, in 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote in this area of, of sex, he said, it's good for a man not to marry. He's basically, his opinion, his view is, it's good if man doesn't have sexual relations. But if you have that passion, that desire, that need, then you need to get married. His cure for it was then the marriage bed still undefiled. Get married. It is good for a man. He worded it this way in 1 Corinthians 7, 1. I didn't realize I had it there in my notes. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, or as others might view it, have his own vessel. Let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise the wife to the husband. And so this area of sexual immorality as married couples, how we can help one another is to make sure that we're meeting each other's needs in this area. This is a drive that the Lord has put in us. It's called a sex drive. And it's, it's an area that, you know, it's needful. Know how to possess his own vessel. I personally believe that it could be possessing a wife, but literally I believe it means our own bodies. For each one of us should know how to possess his own body. And so Paul is saying to control yourself in this area of sexual immorality. Hey, learn how to possess your own body. Learn to control the sexual desires. And only allowing that outlet to be in the marriage bed with your spouse. There are things that Lily and I do to kind of groom this in our relationship. Many of you know that we set aside our Fridays. It's our time. And quite often, that means we'll go out. We even went out this Friday, even though I wasn't feeling the greatest. But see, what we're doing is we're cultivating our love toward one another. We're setting aside a time that's for us, and it's important. And we've been doing that for years. In verse 4 again, we're to possess our own vessels in sanctification and honor. Again, we're set apart to God, and that needs to be remembered. In verse 5, he said, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So we're not to be like the world. That's what he was saying to the church in that day. We're not to be like the world in this area of sexual sin. We shouldn't identify with the world. And to the church today, Paul can say the very same thing because we are identifying with the world. We have the same problem to this very day. But we're not to be like that. The world is being driven by the passion of lust. And it's not to be lust, but it's to be love, and it's to be confined in that marriage bed. And he makes a clear distinction between the believers and the unbelievers. And sadly, we're not seeing that distinction within our church today. The world, they allow their vessels, their bodies to be driven by the passion of lust. 
the believers, the church, are to possess their vessels. Discipline, as Paul in one place says, I discipline my body daily. It means you can never let up on it. You have to possess your vessel daily or bodies in sanctification and honor. So what's the big deal? One might ask. Because Paul knows something, I believe, concerning sexual immorality that I find very interesting in 1 Corinthians six eighteen, Paul tells us to flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. There's something different about this area of sin that's different from all the other sins that we can involve ourselves in. Everything else, Paul says, is outside the body, but this one takes a piece of us with it. God intended for this union to be with one man and one woman. And as you fall in this area of sexual sin and give yourself over to a number of men or a number of women, and I have seen reports of even our teenagers today of girls who are as young as 14 to 15 years old already saying that they've had 40 to 50 sexual partners. Now, the average age of a teenager today losing their virginity is the age of 15. That's the current statistic on this. But as they lose their virginity, they're also giving up part of themselves that was intended for their wife, intended for their husband. In this area of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 6, if we back up a few verses, he actually deals with Christ being part of your life now. And would you take Christ to be with a prostitute? There are some things that we do, but if we really literally think about it, we would never do. Like go to a triple X theater and have Jesus physically present with us. You know, if, if Jesus was with us, we would never say, Lord, I'm going to go check out this movie. You want to come? We would never do that. We'd say, Lord, could you go somewhere else? Because I'm going to go do something else right now. And I don't want you to see. But as a believer, the Lord is in us. And so when we go into these areas that we know we shouldn't be, we are taking the Lord with us there. And so he says, flee from sexual immorality. We have a great example of this in Genesis chapter 39 of Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's wife. She wanted him. She grabbed him, threw him on the bed, and it says she was ready to rape him. And he tore out of his clothes and he fled the place. And he said, how can I do this wickedness and sin against God? He called it wickedness and he called it sin against the Lord before there was ever any writing concerning this sin. The commandments weren't given yet. They wouldn't be for another 400 plus years. But he knew it was against the Lord that he was sinning. So he who sins, every sin is outside the body, but this who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. In verse 6, he says that no one should take advantage and defraud his brother in this manner because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testify. Hey, don't take advantage of your brother in this area. It's not talking about any kind of business relationship. In the context of the passage, this verse is talking about sex and sexual immorality. And we see within the church a priest taking a young boy. He's taking advantage of that boy in this area. A Sunday school teacher who, who takes a young girl or a young boy in the same way. They're taking advantage of their brother or their sister in this area. They're defrauding them. And Paul said, the Lord is the avenger of such, as we have forewarned and testified. Be careful 
Verse 7, for he did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. That word for holiness there is the same Greek word that deals with sanctification. We have been set apart again. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has given us his Holy Spirit. John, forget it, man. I don't want to give up that area of sin in my life. You may call it sin, but I don't. Well, Paul is saying here, and it's not me who's saying it. Paul is saying, if you reject this teaching, you're not rejecting me. You're not rejecting John. You're rejecting God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Father, we ask that you would be with us. And Lord, that in this, this time, Lord, that you would work in our hearts in a very special way. Lord, you want us to walk in such a way that's pleasing to you. And Lord, this is an area that many of us have failed with in the past, perhaps are still failing. And Lord, it's an area, and even in our future, that apart from your work in our lives, we will fail again, apart from you coming in and rescuing us from our own selves. So Lord, we pray that your spirit would work abundantly this hour. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Calvary Chapel is a fellowship of believers in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire is to know Christ and to be conformed into His image by the power of His Holy Spirit. If you would like more information about Calvary Chapel, or if you would like a copy of today's message, please contact us at 847-265-0646. That's 847-265-0646. Thank you so much for joining us today. And may the Lord richly bless you as you worship him today.